slash 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oreo Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen, and joined by Orioles broadcaster Brett Hollander on the couch. This how, is exciting. How does it feel? It feels great. It's a very comfortable couch, but it's a very deep couch. <laughs> yeah, it is. You got to really, really lean you gotta back. Soak into it. it in. Yes, I can yeah. see myself, you know, watching some football here this weekend yeah. or taking a nap. Honestly, so I'm, I'm good either way. I'm not going to say I've done it, but. I've done it. Certainly before. not going to say you haven't. <laughs> you guys have a built-in nap space. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Here on the a second floor of the warehouse. All we need is a shower, and we could really live here. Does anyone we else could. who works here do they know about this go-to we, nap place? We're going to keep it on the down low, I think, Brett. And there's two of them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you guys are in good shape. Really spread out here. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us here on the couch. My pleasure. We're going to take live questions. We're going to talk about your broadcasting career. And we're uh, going to start, though, with the most important topic here, which is how has Brendan's fantasy football advice? Well, <laughs> this is the master right here. Brendan Morrison, <laughs> you think he's good at podcasting and creating great content. Well, I don't well, think many people do. Yeah, but, no, no. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe you think he knows something like that. Uh, his real expertise is his fantasy football advice. And uh, he has been... Uh, burdened by me over the last several weeks, but only because we're late in the season. I have a first place club. It's crunch time. And, and it's yeah. crunch time. Yeah. And there's a lot on the line. Old high school league. It's been around for wow. over a decade. So it's personal. Yeah. A lot's on the line. And I just showed Brendan our standings. I've never seen anything quite like it. No. It's an eight-way race for first place. Oh, and, my and the first two teams get by, six get in. So, I mean, the pressure is, is there. And right. you feel you have a club that can bring it all home, uh, you go for it, you yeah. know? It's yeah. like that team at the deadline. And and you, you work so hard in the offseason and in through the preseason, and, right. and you get to this point late in the season, you you have to put all your chips in the middle of the table, and that's where Brendan comes in. He'll be treated very well <laughs> right. to his favorite dinner uh, and, and dinner spot in Baltimore when this season comes to an end, if I can bring it all home. Perfect. Where is that going to be, Brendan? I don't know. Pressure's on. <laughs> I, I don't want to pick a place yet no. because I don't want to jinx it. Yeah, no, you Because if I don't deliver, then... It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, but those are the stakes for you. Right. Yeah. So don't just like send me back answers. Like really think about it. Yeah. Oh, I, I am. This is don't like worry. bringing in a weathered coach as like a consultant late in the <laughs> exactly. year. Exactly. Uh, that it's, uh, I'll tell you, I gave, you know, I take Brendan's advice on fantasy all the time because the, the guy knows what he's talking about. Well, I'm not trading for prospects at this point. I mean, right. I am. We're deadline's going. Right. That, that is right. the deadline's passed. We have, uh, we are set on this season. We're not thinking about next year. Yeah. It's all about, 22 and what would be decided i think actually in uh i think our championship week is that final week or the second to last week of the regular season which is in 2023 actually and it's funny too talking about fantasy football because i think everybody has like a much more important home league yes. there's always leagues that you try to start like in college or with work friends or whatever it might be but it is always the much more important home league yes. that takes all the stakes are you guys fantasy baseball players I'm not. I fantasy used to be. baseball is hard. I That's used to be. And I actually got into a league, I think, before. We didn't even call it fantasy then. It was like rotisserie. Yes. And it was uh, people my dad knew. And I was the youngest person in this league by like 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And I would take them to school. Really? <laughs> but that's at like the height of your possible sports knowledge. Right. Where you're pouring over, I mean, this is going to sound really old, but like box scores in the morning in the newspaper. And right. you have so much information now. But I would 
uh, spent a lot of time. That was a very competitive league. But it's it, you're right. Fantasy baseball is very difficult. Yeah. You got to set your lineup every morning. Yes. It's hard. It's an everyday grind. Like, yes. Much like baseball. Much like baseball. Yeah. And now we know the world of Michael Elias and Brandon Hyde. <laughs> exactly. In our fantasy pretend world. Exactly. I think we, we live the same exact It's very life. similar challenges, I would yeah. say. The stakes are quite as yeah. a little different, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, Brett, let's talk about how you got into broadcasting initially. Was this something that you always wanted to do? You always saw yourself doing broadcasting and growing up in Baltimore. Was this something that you saw yourself doing specifically for the Orioles? Uh, yes. I mean, that is the truth of it. I, I wish um, it sounds almost cliche and like I'm pretending or making it up, but that is exactly how I envisioned uh, things going for me personally. I uh, knew at a very young age I wanted to be a sportscaster and wanted to get into broadcasting. And once I was smart enough to realize I would not be the everyday second baseman of the team, <laughs> I would look up to uh, John Miller and, and Chuck Thompson and others in the broadcast booth and so many great ones that have come our way here. And I would say, that's where I want to be. And I started calling games uh, into the old dictaphone that my mom had for work. And I would turn down the TV sound at home and I would call games, eight, nine, 10 years old, listen back, see what I did well, see what I didn't do well. I always had a pretty good ear for uh, listening and paying attention to broadcasters I would hear on the radio or television. And then I kind of uh, became obsessed with it. And I always tell this when I speak to younger kids, because a lot of people want to get into this industry it's probably not a great idea to say, I'm going to be this, I'm going to do this no matter what, because you might get into something and say, this isn't for me. So, you know, keep your options open and learn as much as you can in school, pay attention to everything. But for me, there was really nothing else. And so I guess I didn't follow my own advice, <laughs> but I um, was fortunate enough to kind of in the early days of broadcasting on the internet, I was able uh, to start calling games in high school. I mean, this is really early on yeah. in the uh, internet age uh, of putting sports games. You know, we would call it something like radio, but it was really just putting broadcasts on the internet, which is obviously a, you know, a billion dollar industry now. And uh, not just for, for, you know, just radio, but for also what we do visually yeah. uh, and almost a television experience and streaming. So I, I was able to do that my junior year of high school mm -hmm. and then went on to do it in college for four years. And I went to Dickinson College. I'm not a Syracuse guy like you <laughs> you guys who are a factory for, for sports casting and play-by-play -play and broadcasting. But the advantage I had was I got to do as many games as I wanted to do mm. over four years. Yeah. And I got to kind of sink or swim on my own where you are uh, driving you know, two, three, four hours to a location. You're setting up the equipment yourself. And you might have an analyst, you may not. And you're just, you're preparing yourself. You're figuring out how to do it and the mechanics of it. And uh, I did have that experience in high school, but uh, I thought actually it was really worthwhile that I wasn't going to do one football game a year, one basketball game a year. You got to do basically as much as you wanted to do. And so I do recommend that experience for people who, who do want to get into the industry. Obviously, if you could go, and I, and I you know, to me, we, and I thought about Syracuse uh, very seriously, uh, you know, for all the reasons you guys went there. But if, I do recommend the idea that if you can go uh, to a school, and I went to a D3 school, where you can do as much as you want, I, I do think that's a great experience. Now, did you get to do baseball specifically in college, or was it a little bit of everything? I did everything. I mean, I did everything from baseball. I did one soccer game. <laughs> I know we're in the middle of the World Cup. And I begrudgingly did it, but it was a huge game. We had a really good women's team, and they asked me to do it. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know. And I'm actually staying up the night before learning the rules, which I still don't know. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I remember it was 0-0 zero, zero at halftime. And I threw out a line that I had been waiting and waiting to say. 
And I said, it was nil-nil a quintessential soccer game. <laughs> and I was kind of holding on to that, hoping we'd have that outcome at halftime. And I am, you know, and this is kind of the fun of it, but I'm basically making up as I go. Right. And, yeah. and that's when you really learn if you can do it or not. Yeah. But yeah, I broke into broadcasting actually professionally. My first job as a paid professional was doing beach traffic reports. Really? And I talk about making up as you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I was like, the Bay Bridge is backed up. And I'm like, I, it must be. It's a Sunday in the summer. I mean, the sports is back up. <laughs> you don't have a helicopter in the no, sky. No, I do not. I yeah. did not. That's that's the great part about calling games on the radio that you yeah. know nobody's watching. You could just say anything. You yeah. Be oh, like, yeah. There, and there's a dog on the field. Yeah. Uh, it's stopping play. Well, it's theater of the mind. It's your imagination. <laughs> yeah. That's what's, yeah. That's one of the beauties of, of radio, uh, whether right. it, there's something very intimate about it. And it really is. You can be so creative. You can really, and this is such a tacky uh, a term, but you can really explore the space yeah. and try things. And, and not that not what you're saying or calling isn't exactly what you see, but there's right. obviously something very uh, subjective about everything you see. Yeah. So, I, but I think it's, uh, it makes it more fun. I think it's more challenging uh, than, I think if you ask Kevin Brown this, he, he would even agree, someone who's had a lot of experience doing both uh, play-by-play wise, he would tell you that, uh, you know, radio to be on is probably much more difficult, but also in its own way, much more fun. Right. Well, you mentioned Kevin Brown, another one of your broadcast partners, and Jeff Arnold. You guys went to the same alma mater. Not Kevin. Kevin went with you guys at Syracuse. Yes. But Jeff and I did go to Dickinson together. Uh, He was a freshman when I was a senior, and I was kind of... uh, the guy had been doing the sports casting the whole time and, and Jeff wanted to break in. He, he will say this. And I think it's actually really smart. He came to college with no expectation professionally of what yeah. he wanted to be or what he wanted to learn in college. We were actually ironically, both political science majors. Uh, our school did not have a communications uh, degree or, or journalism, but you know, I, I did write for the school paper. I did try and you know pick up things like that along the way. Yeah. But for Jeff, he came in with a totally open mind and kind of fell in love with the craft of play-by-play and sports casting, and, and to his credit, and uh, we were somewhat ships passing the night there. Uh, we did know each other, and then we really reconnected when I, I was at uh, WBAL Radio and Television uh, down the street from here, and he was with the Frederick Keys. But I had been uh, doing the Orioles pre and post, and doing a lot of uh, you know baseball work at that point in my career, and, and he was kind of getting going with the Frederick Keys. So yeah. uh, we connected at that point, and we've remained obviously very close friends and now colleagues. But I w- I'll say this, Paul and Brendan, Dickinson is making a comeback, <laughs> or actually going to start its own trajectory of great sportscasters. Yeah, but I, I think it has to be longer odds than one in a million to have two. Yeah. Students, two graduates from Dickens, Little Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to both be in Major League Baseball at the same time and with the same team. And I mean, yeah. It has to be like five million to one. And that they overlapped in school. Too. Overlapped in school. Uh, it, it is it is bizarre. Yeah. There's no other way to say it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Syracuse guys, who cares? That, no, that no, happens I mean, You guys are boring. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Factory. I mean, uh, I'm going to guess. Uh, a Syracuse guy uh, will call uh, either <laughs> on TV, radio, or nationally. The NBA Finals, Super yeah. Bowl, and World Series in the next 
three or four years I, if they if they aren't already doing it this year. I can't believe Kevin's going to do all three, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but good for Kevin. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned doing radio. Obviously, you know you do some TV as well. Do you like how often you are bouncing between those two? To like it just kind of gives you you know a little bit of an, an excitement of being able to do different things all the time. Uh, I do like how it kind of changes up. Usually after I do stretches. Usually after like a ten game stretch of doing radio play by play, you shift to. A TV pre-post and it's a different part of your brain and it's a different skill set so I think it keeps right. things fresh and sharp yeah. uh, for me mentally. I really love play-by-play in the sense of the craft. It's one of those things where and this is again very uh, inside baseball cheesiness but it's one of those things where you can never perfect you can never just get an A plus or 100 on the test every time yeah. but you can always strive for that. And there's so much nuance to it, especially in baseball play-by-play. Obviously, the game dictates. The team success dictates so much of what you're doing. But the cadence of baseball uh, allows for so much room to move and uh, for you to make mistakes or be good or nail a call. But it's one of those things you just have to embrace. I I have a long talk show background on the radio, so I think that specifically very much helps me with baseball. Yeah. But I also love studio work, and you guys do great a great job at that too. Uh, and, and whether it's here or, or pre post on Orioles or nationals, that's like you owning your own uh, show for 30 minutes. And you, yeah. you can, you, if you have a bad day, bad segment, you're really on your own Island. But I think there's a thrill to that. Um, and I, you know, I love, I love both in, in different ways. I also love doing, you know, sit down interviews. I got to do a couple of really cool ones this year with Adley when he got here yeah. and with Brooks Robinson, talk about people in different you know, parts of their, of their baseball life. But I, I love that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different aspects of the industry. I, I always say be as versatile as you can be. Uh, and, and I think in the end, it all helps you become a better broadcaster. Yeah. So uh, maybe it's not your favorite thing to do, but say yes to everything. Right. And whether it's doing voiceover work or reporting or sideline work, or, I, you know, a lot of people say they want to do play-by-play. I mean, that's kind of what 90% of our colleagues in this industry will tell you. But, there's a lot of different pathways to that point for one and whatever you do along the way will help you become a better broadcaster. Right? Yeah. And you being from Baltimore, listening to you on the radio or watching you on O's extra in particular, I think when you're doing play by play, the amount of references that you can make to Orioles history and great Orioles players of the past, because you just know this stuff off the top of your head because you watched it happen. It's not like you had to go back and research all this stuff. Do you feel like, you know, that kind of gives you an extra sense of context when you're watching Orioles games? Well, I think it's just who I am Mm -hmm. and whatever I am is authentically me. And I I think that's the way I always wanted to be doing this. And I have told this to everyone and, you know, maybe this hurts my uh, quote unquote, any leverage I have with the Baltimore Orioles in my career (laughs) path. I would not want to do this in another market. Like it just, I, I, I love baseball so much. It's a huge part of my life. It will always be with me mm-hmm. to the day I die. And I love the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, again, it's one of those things that you take with you the rest of your life. But I'm just not interested in doing this in another market. Now, not that I would say not any you know broader opportunity to do kind of a, a niche thing somewhere, you know, nationally or whatever would come along. But as far as doing day-to-day baseball work, uh, this is yeah. the only thing that really interests me. So it's authentic. It's genuine. Um and now any contract negotiation I have with the team will go out the window. They know I have nowhere to go. But um, I, I, in all seriousness, it's just who I am. It's a part of my life. And and anything I reference 
is either from something I've spent a lot of time researching or, or thinking about uh, or uh, something that I experienced as a fan, whether listening to the radio, watching on television, or being at Memorial Stadium or Camden Yards. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in some fundamentals of, of fandom. And, you know, I do have to take with me the fact that I'm a broadcast professional and yeah. I can't just be the eight-year-old version of myself. I think I do a pretty good job of that. But uh, the, the idea that fandom is based on connectivity through generations and it's about history and, and a connection to the past and we don't just arrive uh, on an important game there's there's context to it and yeah. and I think you know one thing I've always kind of stressed and I, I've done sports talk shows after devastating Orioles losses or devastating Ravens losses you know the Billy Cundiff missed field goal games where I really feel I'm the guy on the couch and I'm helping someone in, in a more of a therapeutic way trying to get through these terrible losses, you know, and, and also great wins after Super Bowls and then after one of my favorite nights in the history of my career was after the Orioles beat the Rangers in the wild card game in 2012. I mean, we, we took calls until two o'clock in the morning. We could have taken them until six the next morning. And to me, though, there's a lot more to be gained through some of those tougher moments than the obvious moments of victory. And so I do try and provide the context to it and and really what I believe fandom is all about, which I think somewhat has gotten lost in the modern day, but it definitely is about history. Yeah. And and there's a longstanding history uh, and whether someone understands my reference perfectly talking about Brooks Robinson or has never heard of Brooks, it doesn't matter. There's, it the Baltimore Orioles just didn't come here as an institution. There's been many decades and generations of moments, good, bad, ugly, that get us to this point. And I think it's really important to kind of connect those dots. And growing up in the area and, you know, being an Orioles fan and having all of those experiences, when you do things like call an important game or interview Brooks Robinson, do you allow yourself a moment to take a step back and just go like, wow, this is cool? I try to. I mean, I try and have a, a sense of just allow yourself to, to kind of take in the moment, pinch yourself, uh, have reverence for the job. I mean, I, I will tell you right now, you, there aren't that many people who have done Orioles play-by-play -play on radio and television. It's just not that big of a list. Yeah. And several of them are in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, whether it's Chuck, Ernie Har Harwell, John Miller, it's an incredible uh, thing to be a part of. Uh, it's exactly what I set out to do. Uh, when you're talking to Brooks Robinson, he comes up and says, hey, Brett, I mean, that, it's just hard to beat that. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. just hard to, uh, if I were to tell an eight-year-old version of myself, this is how it ended up. Um, you know, I think I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I'm not sure I'm that good, but I will say that uh, it's just remarkable uh, to even be in these situations. And, you know, I told myself, I remember doing pre and post for the Orioles and I was in radio too. Mm. Uh, that's where we used to do pre and post out of uh, when I was on WBAL and I, you know, was very close with, at the time, Joe Angel, who's one of the all-time greats, belongs in the Hall of Fame, and Fred Manfra, who's a, a close personal friend and mentor. And I, I would say, you know what? I'm in Radio 2 right now. I'm really close to Radio 1. You got to be ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anything can happen. So, uh, yeah, I, it was like this wall, but I was, you know, 25, 26, 27, thinking, if I can just get on the other side of the wall, now I am. So yeah. it's, it's really strange, um, and I really hope and then try to kind of have a moment where I can appreciate what I've accomplished. It's hard in, in I hate saying the grind of it all, but just, you know, um, a parent of two young kids and a husband and busy and, 
and you have a professional obligation to prepare every day. So it's hard to feel that way, but you try. Yeah. That's how I feel every time Brendan says, hi, Paul, you know, I have to pinch you, myself. Pinch yourself. Yeah. I, I will say this. I can't, I, oh, I made this pledge myself years ago. You guys have been around press boxes. There are a lot of, how do I put this delicately? Curmudgeon types. <laughs> sure. And, and I get it. They are odd hours. They're long hours. When, when you dream of becoming a sportscaster, someone involved in this industry, you don't really think about nights, weekends, and holidays, but that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, there's certainly, you know, all the weddings you miss and all the big events, family stuff. They don't tell you that, uh, you know, or you don't care, even if they were to tell you that necessarily going in. Um, but there's a lot of curmudgeons. I always said, do, do not ever be too cool for school. Yeah. Do not ever become a complainer when you're on the job. For one, it's unbecoming. And two, uh, no, no one wants to hear it. And no one cares about your problems either. So uh, there's a lot of people who would, probably sell their soul to be where you are. So don't ever yes. go moan and complain about it. I'm yeah. sure there's there's somebody in everybody's life who covers baseball who they would switch places with immediately. Some, I think of my dad every time yeah. I have complaints about work and I express those and just kind of his awe in being me being that close to baseball and he grew up a baseball fan. It's something that so many people in our lives, I think, would love yeah. an opportunity to have some of the perks of the job that go along with it. And I, it, like you said, Brett, it does come with long hours and does come with a lot of sacrifices. But would you trade it for anything else? Right. Yeah. Be beats working for a living. It beats working for a, a living and nothing against being a ditch digger, but there's a great old friend of mine, a producer who, who did Orioles uh, radio for a long time named Johnny Goldsmith. He's a, a great sports uh, engineer and producer. Mm -hmm. And he would whisper in Joe Angel and Fred Manfra and Jim Hunter's ear before opening day every year, and he would say, you're not digging ditches. <laughs> so it's just a subtle reminder about how lucky we are to be associated yeah. with this game. Yeah. If, you, if you are a ditch digger out there, send us your complaints. Yeah, no, we apologize. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it was a nice way yeah. to kind of uh, remind everyone, because it is a long grind. It is a, you are away from your family a lot. Yeah. Uh, but would you trade in for something else? Yeah, exactly. Not I wouldn't. I, I think also to turn this now to the current Orioles, it has been a long stretch since the beginning of the end of the Dan Duquette era mm -hmm. to where the Orioles are now. And it has felt like a lot of long grinds of seasons. This past year really didn't feel like that. Was was there a noticeable kind of um, energy, do you no. think, even just being around the team, being broadcasting the team? Yeah, without a doubt. I remember I said middle April, and I made this reference on O's Extra pregame. And I forget the exact record, but the Orioles had got swept coming out of the gate. They were uh, several games below 500. There wasn't a sense that this thing would just like the light switch would go on and they go on this run. Yeah. And I said, and, I, and this was true. I was around town and everyone was saying, you know, I'm really impressed with how they're playing right now. It's not, the record is not an indicator of where they are. And a couple of people on Twitter, not that I care, reached <laughs> out and just smoked me. How dare you defend a team that's, you know, nine and 15, whatever the record was. Uh, my sense though from the town was that people were cautiously optimistic it was heading the right direction. Now, no one foresaw those the winning streak and the heroics and the late game walk-offs, but it was building from the beginning of April, I thought. It was yeah. tangibly different. They were way more competitive because of the, of the pitching and the bullpen. Uh, it was a much more uh, exciting team. And then obviously when Adley got here, uh, it kind of changed everything and the momentum of it all. And and that was real. It was tangible. You could feel it. And there was a sense that, you know, I was actually looking at the lineup on the day Adley played. I'm like, 
this team isn't bad. <laughs> and although the offense was probably nothing to write home about all year long, um, you know, it, it, it was something that had changed almost immediately. But Adley got off to a very slow start, which I think is kind of overlooked in the sense that, uh, one, his ability to make an early adjustment. Yeah. And, and it really would bury some young players. And, I, and we've seen it. We, we've seen even the most talented uh, hotshot rookie get buried with a bad start, especially when the expectations are that high. But his ability to adjust and then uh, the team sense of it all, it was just a much better team. Yeah. And and they they were scrappy. They were fun to watch. They're athletic. And they pitched well. And they weren't giving games up the way we had seen and just those crooked numbers from the opposition. So... Um, I can't, I mean, there were moments of incredible excitement and walk-offs and, you know, jaw-dropping plays where you're like, what did they just do? What did they uh, just pull off? But I don't think it's one of those moments other than you could say the day Adley got here where it was like, okay, uh, they're going to win 83 games and they're going to uh, be in it the entire time. I don't think there's like that moment just kind of built throughout the summer. Yeah. From a broadcaster's perspective, what were some of your favorite games to call? Favorite moments? There were so, this is what's crazy about it. There were so many games where we turned to each other and said that was the best game of the year. There was, yes. I think we said that eight or nine times, and I refused to anoint one because I'm telling you, if you experienced it in the moment, you would have said that was the game of the year. Cedric Mullins hit a walk-off, I think it was July 5th or 6th. I called the walk-off, and it was a wild, freakishly wild game, and I said that was the game of the year. And then I am positive we all said to each other another five, six, seven times after that. No one even remembers that game anymore. Right. Because there were so many other weird and strange games. Um Come back on the 4th of July, and I'll say this just because I got to call the Jorge Mateo walk-off hit-by-pitch yeah. on the radio, but that was a weird game, and, and Adley Rutschman comes up with this huge hit. Yeah, uh, They were you know getting to closers like they did against the Angels, and that was such a big weekend uh, in that in that four-game series where they swept L.A. Uh, you know, Mike Trout, Shoei Otani are in town. It's a big deal. That team wasn't great. You had the Nevin story yeah. uh, going into it. Uh, uh, those were freakish games and so much fun. Uh, and I remember this, it, we were, I was working that weekend, but it was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And we were hosting a lot of friends and family in a suite here. Mm. And my mom, I was about to go on O's Extra. And, uh, my, you know, my parents stayed to the end. You know, even though they were kind of like, you know, it was a long day and night, but like, I think we should stay. And what was it? Uh, Rysel and Glacius, they get to him yeah. in the ninth, two outs, nobody on. I think two strikes. They eventually walk it off with a, a Mancini base hit. And then, they, you know, they just kept on winning. Yeah. And in the way they were winning. So it was a really fun season. And I thought the energy in the ballpark, and probably more importantly around town, was uh, tangible. Yeah. And I think the the light is turned on for the fans. And, and now uh, I think fans are full steam ahead and, and looking towards the future. Well, speaking of which, we are getting comments on YouTube and on Facebook about what the next steps are for the Orioles this offseason. And sometimes on this podcast, it's usually just me and Brendan. We are often an echo chamber, just kind of repeating our opinions. Our takes are too similar sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've, we've kind of laid out before what we think the Orioles need, but I'm curious to get your perspective as uh, to... What the, the needs are do. pretty obvious in the sense that they need a, a starting pitcher, a veteran at the front of the rotation. We all agree on that? Yep. They, I think it'd be very helpful to get an established bat in the middle of the order even on a short-term deal, if for nothing else, to take some pressure off the Rutschmans and Hendersons in the world. Yeah. I think the tough decision for Mike Elias right now is, uh, you look at the plethora of young talent in the system, and at the big league level, not all of them are going to be everyday players for the Baltimore Orioles. So you have to decide who's going to be a long-term contributor, Yeah, uh, who is 
going to be a stud, who's going to be an everyday player, and you have to figure that out. Now, you still might trade a star, but that doesn't mean it's a bad move if you're bringing back a piece that helps you in the next two or three years. So that's kind of uh, the, the, the math and the equation that Michael Elias and Sig have to look at. Uh, it, these are really tough decisions because uh, you don't want to say goodbye to someone you think could be an everyday player or, or even a star. So that's why he's Michael Elias and that's why it's <laughs> Sigma Dell because they're making those decisions and we don't have to, but they're really tough decisions. And we can say, I think Jordan Westberg's going to be a second baseman or a shortstop or a third baseman. Well, someone actually has to make that call. Yeah. And they have to make it pretty soon. I think the Jorge Mateo question is an interesting one. Is he a super utility player? Is he an everyday shortstop? What is his ceiling beyond what we saw? I think we all agree he's such a special defensive talent. He's so athletic. If you can get on base a little more and you can surround him with a better lineup, probably someone that you feel would be a guy you want to plug in at shortstop every day. Uh, can you count on some of the bullpen performances we saw last year? Yeah. A lot of them were waiver wire claims, meaning several teams, at least one, gave up on that player and said, I don't see it. Uh, so that's an important thing to figure out. Uh, so there's a lot of tough decisions. I do think starting pitcher, at least one, uh, and then to, to help to have some sort of middle of the order bat to uh, take some pressure off uh, the younger bats and to kind of lengthen the lineup, uh, I think would be a, a wise move. A true like run producer, and I don't know if people say that anymore in baseball because of, of how people speak of analytics, but someone who knows how to get run-ins because they didn't score enough last year. Yeah. That's just not the reality. Now, I do like... I actually think Cedric Mullins is going to have a big year next year. And I do think the offense will be really dynamic with uh, some of the new rules in play. And I think more stolen bases and stuff like that. And they're just a really young athletic team. I mean, Henderson, Rutschman, yeah. if we see Westberg, uh, you know, I think it's just going to be a, a really dynamic offense. But you do need some people who can pound the baseball. And I, I think that's what they'll be looking for. So one position specifically that has had a lot of buzz around it is the shortstop position. There seems to be two camps of thought, which is, do you go with the internal options of the Jordan Westbergs, Joey Ortiz, Jorge Mateos, or do you try to go out and sign one of the big name shortstops like a Carlos Correa? Where do you tend to fall in those camps? I, I don't see it now. Three days from now, this podcast will be really dated when the winter meetings start. You guys are off to San Diego to enjoy that and, and cover it for, for us. And you guys, I cannot wait to see the content you guys bring back. But I'll be, I'll be you know, pins and needles here in Baltimore. <laughs> right. um, it, but I think, I don't think it's necessary. And, and you, you've worked really hard to build up this system. That is one position where you have legitimate options, uh, whether it's Henderson at short. And there's so many different ways they could play. And let's not forget... Although I don't think anyone sees him at shortstop, but Connor Norby at second base. I mean, right. I mean yeah. to me, I mean, these guys have rare power and athleticism and they're young and they're under club control. So uh, I'm really curious about those guys. I, I don't think it's a necessity to bring an infielder in right now. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I also am a big believer in Ryan Mountcastle. I, I, I think both Mullins and Mountcastle uh, will have big years next year. I think Cedric, you look at the huge uh, 21 campaign. I think there's a lot of pressure coming back in 22. Yeah. Uh, there's a big burden on, on him after that season. And, and he didn't have a bad year at all. Right. And, and at worst, Cedric Mullins is a gold glove caliber defender. He's going to steal 30 to 40 bases, and he's a stat stuffer. He's going to hit a lot of extra base hits and do a lot of things well for you at the top of the lineup. But uh, when it comes to Mountcastle, if you look at some of the metrics, he was a very unlucky hitter last year. And he also went through really bad spells. But I think you look at him coming into his third full season. I And yes, the wall aspect of it... 
is something we won't see maybe his full power potential as long as he's an Oriole. But I have no question that Mountcastle is a 30 home run hitter uh, with probably 25 to 30 doubles. And he actually played really good first base too. Yeah, I, it's, I thought you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how it is the job of Michael Elias in this front office to look at the whole prospect pool right now and determine who is going to be here to stay. Because we heard the reports from Ken Rosenthal that they might be interested in a trade for a Corbin Burns or some of those top-end pitchers. And, and then the other... Okay, sorry to interrupt you, No, Paul, yeah, go for But it. the other aspect of that, and I was thinking about some of those potential uh, pitching trade targets, which I think we all know, to me the difference, and this is all part of the equation, mm-hmm. is the Orioles' likely winning trajectory. I think they want to open up, and they, they have opened up, what could be a an extended window, an extended opportunity of winning. And you also, by the way, want enough depth in your system because players don't succeed. Players get hurt. A lot of things can happen. But someone like Burns, who's a free agent after the 24 season, what are the odds that your 2024 season is a year you can truly compete for a pennant? Now, maybe it's really high. I think if you look at the next few years, I think, you know, somewhere in that window. Yeah. I think if someone like that's available through 25, you just feel better about that move. Now you have to give up more for yeah. a guy who's available or on your club, at least for the next three years. And it doesn't mean you couldn't extend the player, but I think that aspect, when you're doing the math in your head, when are the Orioles going to be absolutely a prime uh, contending standpoint, not just to get in the playoffs, but to go for it. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge part of the equation, whether that possible trade target is under club control for two or three years. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go for Burns. Right. Because maybe... 24 is it. And that also buys you some time to you know, groom Grace Rodriguez to replace Burns when that time comes, or yeah. Deal Hall, or the next young pitcher, whomever it might be. Uh, but you do have some pieces to play with in the system. I think that's the exciting thing. Yeah. And I think that begs the question as well of what do you think the ceiling of this Orioles team is over the next few seasons, and how do you elevate that ceiling? And I think, again, there's kind of two camps of thought, which is you bank on the prospects that are already in the system and hope that they develop into the stars that you hope they're going to be, or do you move on from those guys, try to get established veterans and raise that ceiling for a particular season and just hope that you know maybe the prospects you traded away didn't turn into the stars that maybe you thought they would before? I, I definitely think the goal is a mix, right? I mean, I think if you look at the winning clubs of, or the teams who were playing the World Series recently, you have a mix. And I think it's helpful to young players when you surround them with veterans you like. I don't think it was a coincidence last year. And I know he took his lumps and was criticized, but uh, Rugner Odor provided something. Jordan Lyles provided something. Robinson Torino's provided something. Yes, it was the price points the Orioles were looking for and they filled a need. But those three guys were exactly what this team needed at that time. And now they'll have some guys getting a little older, but they're still really young. I mean, Gunnar Henderson is still rookie of the year eligible. He'll be one of the youngest players in Major League Baseball. And we know the list. Uh, and it's, we're going to talk like Mullins and Mountcastle are these grizzled veterans. They're not. Yeah. But it helps have guys who've been there, done that. It helps have guys who've been in the postseason yeah. and, and to show you how to play the game the right way. And, and to hold guys accountable because even though coaching staffs in Major League Baseball have grown to like NFL size, uh, they cannot respond to every little detail during the game. They just cannot. And you need veterans uh, who can really hold others accountable. And, you know, you look at the Orioles' closer next year, it's going to be a guy who has been a closer for half a season. Uh, You know, much of the rotation will be three years and under in the big leagues. And uh, their star catcher is going to be in year two. Their starting third baseman is going to be in year one, basically. So, 
it is a very young club. Yeah. Well, you have provided a lot for this podcast, Brett. <laughs> Where can we uh, hear your uh, hot stove show? Uh, it is on uh, WBAL radio. Uh, and it's with Jeff Arnold. We kind of rotate, but we do some shows together. We'll be live uh, on Tuesday night, mm -hmm. uh, this coming Tuesday, with you guys at the winter meetings. Hopefully, we have some Orioles news uh, to break down, some uh, maybe even a press conference. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but we'll have some live reports coming uh, from San Diego for the winter meetings. But best uh, of luck to you guys next week. I know you thank guys you. will be yeah, very busy you. working around the clock and also uh, <laughs> safe travels to Southern California. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very it's much. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Brett Hollander. I'm going to hang out for a while. Couch. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Take a nap on the couch if you so choose. <laughs> Brett Hollander joining us here on the Mass and All Access podcast. And we will be back next week from San Diego, California. For Brett Hollander and Brendan Mortensen, I'm Paul Mancano. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.